Just a quick reminder to let you know that next week uh, we will not have chapel on Wednesday. It's the one time during the year when we don't because Defender Days is coming next weekend. So chapel will be moved from the 11 o'clock block on Wednesday to the 11 o'clock block on Friday. And we'll kick off Defender Days um, by gathering with parents and alumni and visitors and our board of trustees and all these people coming to campus all in this place. And and I'm just laid on our offering of worship together. So hope you can make that. Please pray with me. Father, we have just offered up our allegiance in song, our declaration that you reign, that you come first, that we want more of you. Spirit of the living God, continue to work within us so that more of us becomes looking more like your son. Father, teach us what it means to follow you totally and completely, at any and every cost to ourselves, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You haven't really lived until you've been stuck in a riot and been tear-gassed. This happened in 1994 when I was graduating high school. Vancouver Canucks lost the Stanley Cup, and we burned down our city when we lose things. And I got stuck in this mass of people getting tear gassed. And what was interesting about this incident is that while everybody else is running out of the fray and pandemonium is setting in, there are a certain specially trained group of people who were actually, their job was to walk into the riot and the craziness. They all look like this guy. You can see he is fully outfitted for, outfitted for any and every problem that could possibly arise. He's got tools, he's got weaponry, and when you're packing like that, you really don't have to be that afraid of very much at all. But I still think it takes something different in your mind when you see something horrible going on in the world, and instead of running away from it, or maybe even just turtling, you actually have a mentality that allows you to go into it. You have special weapons and tactics. You are trained this way. You are a SWAT team. I was Googling images for SWAT team in order to be able to show what this looked like. I, by the way, was the one turtling, very terrified as tear gas flew around. I did not look that confident. But I found this image as well, looking around. If you can go to the next one for me. There is a group in the city of Abbotsford, British Columbia, that refers to themselves as a different kind of SWAT team, spiritual weapons and tactics. They have a vehicle, actually several vehicles, um, and they scan police, um, or they, they listen to the police scanners. And just like when an emergency call comes in and the EMTs and everybody else goes running out, Armed with weapons of spiritual warfare and prayer, these people actually go flying into the fray and would like surround a crime scene or something big happening in the city and just lay down and pray. What a crazy idea that instead of running away from the fray, they actually run into it. They, they literally do have vehicles that are all marked SWAT team. They have symbols like this on it. You sign up for it. You go through training. Um, and you learn to teach your heart that when something horrible is going on in the world, disciples of Jesus don't run the other way, but they run right into it. What a crazy group of people. Now, I bring that up because of this. 
All through these passages so far that we've been reading in the Gospel of Mark that talk about the mighty deeds that Jesus has done, all continue to reveal something about him. And you never get to a place of total confidence in your faith until we reestablish who Jesus really is. And if we are continually afraid of the things taking place around us in this world, then as the author J.B. Phillips wrote many years ago, your God is too small. Or as John Ortberg wrote in recent years in his book, Who Is This Man?, Um, the question that we all need to be asking us is, who is it that we actually believe Jesus is? And so if there's one question over all the others throughout this entire series of why we're studying miracles, we're not doing this to be able to stand at the side like people would watch a fireworks show and Jesus does another miracle and we're all like, ooh, and then he casts out a demon. Ah, this is not for the purpose of entertainment. This is for the purpose of all of us asking the question, who is this man and what is he doing? See, most authors believe, as the ones who commentate on the Gospels, that it will be our Christology that will always determine our discipleship. That who Jesus is to you, who you believe he is when you close your eyes and you see him, who he is to you in the middle of crisis, who he is to you in the middle of your best day, who he is to you when you wake up in the morning, will determine what your life of discipleship looks like. Christology always leads to discipleship. And so we find people in story after story in the Gospels asking, who is this that calms the waves? Who is this that casts out demons? Who is this that forgives sins? Because the authors want us to be asking ourselves the same questions. Who do I believe that this is? Because my discipleship will always be shaped by it. The last text we came across at the end of chapter 4 in Mark's Gospel has Jesus calming the storm. The waves, the sky, the winds, and Jesus calms it. It's one of the the nature miracles. Now in the very next passage, which we pick up the text today in the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus moves from calming a storm in the sky to calming one of the most amazing storms inside of a man. And this is where we pick up the text today in Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. You may remember several weeks back, I was describing that Mark actually arranges his gospel geographically. So Jesus has begun his ministry in and around Galilee. And now this is the first venture out into a distinctively Gentile area. And now the next couple chapters, he's going to do this around the Decapolis area before he begins his journey south towards Jerusalem. And all the stories are of what's happening along the way. And an increased level of understanding is beginning to take place within the disciples as they each ask themselves the question for themselves, who is this man? Now, to help in answering those questions for ourselves and helping be able to just wrestle with that internally, I want to point out a few things in this text today. And I want you to use these sort of as just litmus questions within yourself and your own spirit in terms of how you understand and work with God through the different problems of your own life. Disciples who really understand who Jesus is. Disciples whose discipleship is coming out of their Christology will always this. Number one, disciples who really get where Jesus, who Jesus is, will go where no one else will go. They will always listen to the call of Christ and just like Jesus himself does in this passage, will go where nobody else is willing to go. Like a SWAT team trained to go into the fray instead of running the other direction, those who have the eyes of faith will always have the ability to do this. Like a fireman who watches a house on fire and everyone else who's terrified is running out, he runs right into it. You and I are called into the heart of darkness. You and I are called to be people not running away, not turtling. And so often consider the culture wars, the things taking place around us. The reason why you are here, the reason why you are getting the education that you are getting is so you can be effective in your discipleship within the world of helping bring about transformation. You are not called to run away from anything. You are not called to turtle. You are called as one armed with spiritual weapons and tactics to run into the darkest places on earth and to not be afraid when you do so. Consider where Jesus takes the disciples in this passage. These are good Jewish boys. Jesus is taking them to places where a good Jewish boy should not go. They're going into a Gentile region, which is unclean. This story takes place in a series of tombs in a graveyard. If a tomb, according to Jewish law, is unclean. You've got to go through a ceremonial cleaning if you enter into a tomb. In fact, this is what it even says in the book of Numbers, describing this. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel. They are walking into death. And here is a man living among the dead, even though he is still alive. 
What does it say about the life that this man has had, cut off from Israel, relegated to the tombs, to the place where nobody else would ever want to go? He's in an unclean region, in an unclean place, in a story about an unclean, unkosher animal dealing with unclean spirits. I mean, this is for a Jewish boy, this is about as dirty as it's going to get. These are the places your mom would not let you go. And Jesus says, come with me, I'm taking you in here. First he took them right into a storm, now he takes them right into another place like this. Lesson after lesson, because the disciples of Jesus need to understand, who is this that is leading me on this journey? Who is this that will take me into storms? Who is this that will take me into the storms within other people in this world? And then show me how to exercise an authority even there. Disciples who really follow Jesus will secondly learn to fear nothing. Some of the questions we always ask in the reading this passage is, what on earth is up with Jesus sending the demons into the pigs and then the pigs running down and drowning in the ocean? Jesus just calmed the storm on the water, and now he sends a storm into the water. What's up with that, Jesus? And yet reality is, so many times when Jesus is enacting these miracles, he's demonstrating to us specifically who he is. The great oppressor of Israel in the Old Testament was the Egyptian people. And God drowns their army in the sea after the people of Israel go through it. They make it through the storm of the sea, and then the sea closes in on them. Deliverance from oppression for the people of Israel. Now, a second story of deliverance of oppression through the water takes them out the other side through the storm that they have been in. And now the true enemy of Israel gets drowned once again in the waters. You see the literary brilliance of these gospel writers, how they tie these stories together and pull in Old Testament motifs and ideas? It's just fascinating to watch how they do this with all of their stories. One of the things Mark wants us to see in this text as well is that every Israelite believes that the enemy of Israel are the Romans. But Jesus is showing them as he walks into the heart of darkness that the true enemy of Israel, that who really holds them captive, is not the Romans. The Romans will be replaced with the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever else. What really holds them captive is the spiritual oppression that they are under. The fact that they are not free in Yahweh and now they are not free in Christ. Even the man in this story resembles this, doesn't he? They've tried to bind him with shackles, with iron and and chains and tie him down. And he's broken free of them, but he still hasn't left the tombs. That which holds him down is greater than the chains on his wrists or on his ankles. The spiritual oppression and affliction that this man is under is greater than anything that could be physically applied to him. The Romans were not the real enemies of Israel. And the things that you and I name around us so often are really the symptoms of something so much deeper underneath. And it will be our understanding of who Jesus really is that will hold the potential to set us free. You and I encounter the difficulties around us in our life, the relationship issues that we have, the financial worries that we have, and we deal with them so often on a surface level. Paul reminds us that the real true battles we face in life are with principalities and powers And what Jesus is doing for the disciples is he's pulling back the curtain of reality. And he's showing them, look behind. This is what is really at work. This is really the enemy. It's always joked in counseling circles that when somebody comes in, right? This is the old Freudian type of techniques. You start telling about your problems and the counselor asks you, tell me about your mother. And you're like, what does my mom got to do with this? 
And the whole idea, of course, behind these types of conversations is that so often we're just dealing with the issues up on the top level, the symptoms, and not with the heart of them all. You can see in Jesus' movements with the disciples now in the Gospels is he's taking them to the heart of the matter. Rome isn't really your problem, Israel. Money isn't really your greatest worry. Whatever else seems to be bubbling up on the surface right now might have to be mined a little bit deeper. Maybe the single greatest question you need to be asking in life right now is, who is Jesus to me? Isn't that where the gospel writers are pushing us in these passages? Disciples who really get who Jesus is, number three, will expect God to show up in uncontrollable circumstances. Jesus calms the storm. How to make people comfortable amongst the uncomfortable. Here again, taking people who are comfortable into the uncomfortable. This is where Jesus likes to take us. This is what Paul says, I've come to this realization that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God is glorified in these situations. Expect God to show up in the uncomfortable. Those of us who are growing into eyes of faith will see problems around us in the world and the greatest issues that the world is struggling with will become within our eyes the greatest opportunities to demonstrate the resurrection and the power of Christ. Because every rock and every star and every war and every disease is all coming under his lordship. It is all coming under his lordship when it is all said and done. And so the eyes of faith will increasingly grow and be able to see through the things on the surface what looks like a storm and actually be able to see all the way to the heart of the matter. And those who are growing mature in Christ and their discipleship will be able to see these things. I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody so mature in their walk that when something really bad is happening, their eyes all of a sudden light up because they're looking already for the resurrection. Because the center of every story, the culmination of the ages in Christ Jesus is all about the resurrection that comes out of death. So do we have eyes like the world? Do we see the great problems as those that will just simply dictate what will happen in the rest of our life? Or do you and I have strength to see, because of who Christ really is, that everything is receiving a resurrection and new life? And the voice from the throne that is saying, I am making all things new, has left no stone unturned. I am making all things new. Disciples who really get who Jesus is, number four, will proclaim the gospel telling others not what they must do for God, but what God has done for them. Isn't that what happens at the end of this story with this man? Jesus tells him very explicitly what he is to do. I want you to go and tell others what God has done for you. We have a fundamental misunderstanding of mission. And the message so often that the church proclaims is one that is void of grace. This is what you must do for God. That is not the gospel. That is not grace. And that is not what Jesus said. Our mission and our mandate is to simply go and tell people what God has done for us. That is the message. That is our witness. And until we can honestly and, and with vulnerable spirits be able to tell somebody else, this is the hurt and the heartache in my life. This is where I am broken. This is where I am experiencing the grace and redemption of Jesus Christ. 
That is a sermon that preaches. That is the witness this man is given. Note well, he is the first Gentile missionary to the Gentiles, and this is who Jesus has chosen, and this is the platform that he uses. Make no mistakes, he does not grab a position of power, he does not grab the guy who already stands on the stage. He grabs the last person anybody would have ever expected and said, here, through this one, my kingdom will come in new ways in these places. The eyes of faith will be able to see the kingdom of God show up in places that nobody else would have ever expected because this is how the kingdom of God works. Do you have a place in your life that is still untouched by the redemption of Christ Jesus? Maybe the greatest message that he is ever going to share with your, on your life and through you is actually going to come out of there. Maybe we need to learn as disciples how to get excited about the places where we are the weakest and the most broken. This man was possessed by a legion of demons. And God chooses him to be the first missionary to the Gentiles. Finally, number five. Disciples who really get who Jesus is will be tempted to prize the wrong things. You'll remember that when we finished the story two weeks ago of Jesus calming the storm on the waters, that the disciples were more afraid when he was done than they were in the middle of the storm. What's interesting in this text is the same thing happens all over again. Those who, verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Man restored and in his right mind cost us a bit of money because some pigs died. Man brought back to new life took a little bit of a financial hit on this one. Jesus put somebody all the way back together again who was living as if he was dead in the tombs. Jesus brings about a resurrection in his life. Do I choose this? Am I okay with that? Or maybe this is going to cost us all something. And notice what the people choose. Jesus, we're not comfortable with this. Leave. And I wonder if the same question needs to be asked of each one of us and within our churches too. There is a reason why the first instruction of discipleship is deny yourself. Because every impulse will always be to protect ourselves and our own interests. But a life of discipleship and one who is completely sold out for Christ will always know what the treasures in the kingdom of heaven are. And they are people. They are not protocol. They are not traditions. They are not rules. They are not money. They are not the things that make us the most comfortable. The only treasure in the kingdom of heaven are those who bear God's image in the, all of creation that he is restoring and redeeming. The people have to choose in that moment which one they want. And they choose the unclean animal over the person put back together again who was brought back from the dead. In our own discipleship, will we count the cost? Do we understand what this means and the choice that is really before us? Because you have to understand that a whole lot is on the table. I don't know if you noticed this when I read through the text. How many people in this passage are begging? Everybody's begging. In God's name, don't torture me. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. And the people began to beg Jesus to leave their region. The man who was demon-possessed begged Jesus to go with him. Everybody's desperate. 
Everybody wants and needs something from Jesus. The stakes are so high. Desperation coming to the surface. And the people more afraid after the man's put back together than they were when they could just sort of leave him out in the tombs. Who is this man? Who is this one? Who is this Jesus to you? Is your heart getting more and more excited about being part of the healing ministry of Christ in the world? Do we understand and are our lives being wrapped around the fact that there is one treasure that we are invited into being the most excited about and seeing restored? What holds your dreams and your imagination? If you or I are ever going to be the most effective possible disciples and citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this place, it will only be when we are excited about the same things that excited Jesus the most. One of the commentators I was reading on this passage said, I wonder if even the demons were surprised by the way that the kingdom of God starts showing up. Because they seem to be kind of baffled by it. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets why Jesus would do this. The wisdom of God is always going to confound us. And so he will ask you to do things that don't always make sense. And Jesus' decision making does not always work out on a pro and con chart. And it doesn't always work out on a financial ledger sheet either. People? Pigs. Yeah, Jesus, we would have rather had the pigs. We're going to need you to go. How many statements in our own life are prizing something other than seeing ourselves and everybody else set right again? Who is this man? Because until we can answer that question in an ever-increasing way with the eyes of faith, we will also not know who this man is. Or who you are. Because your discipleship will always flow out of your Christology. Will you pray with me? Father, we need to grow. And we admit so many times that we try to hold on to things ourselves. And it's challenging for us the discipleship that you call us to. In the life of surrender. You're calling us to places we would not probably want to go. And you're calling us beyond where it's safe. Father, cause us to become excited about these things in ways that only your spirit could do within us. Armed with spiritual weapons and tactics. That we too would run into the fray. That we too, because of who you are are growing more and more. Father, help our hearts to be excited about the things that truly are the treasures in the kingdom of heaven. Help us not to protect that which is comfortable for that which might be more like you. Father, do this work within us. Help us to fall more fully in line with your kingdom and help us to know what it means and to be able to pray with all sincerity Father, call us to greater discipleship at any and every cost to ourselves. If it will mean your glory, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Will you please rise and receive a blessing in the rest of your day?
Beloved of Jesus Christ, you are his disciples. You are his plan. You are the sent ones. And you are sent with an authority that is wider and bigger than anything you could ever imagine. You are God's plan of redemption for all things. May your eyes see its treasures and may your hearts want them. May your lives get wrapped around them. And may everything you do fall in line with the one who has set you free from the chains that bind you and me too. In his name, amen.